This morning, we're going to start a new series on the life of David. We're calling it The Gospel According to David, because I think that we'll see as we walk through David's monumentous life, uh, such rich shadows of Jesus Christ in the gospel of His grace. Now, I'm going to read this morning from 1 Samuel 16. We're going to read verses 1 through 13, and I want to just explain a simple concept for you before we read the text, just to help put it in a little bit of context we're going to be talking about the anointing of King David. Now, for many of you who grew up in the church, maybe you've been a Christian for a long, long time. You know all about anointing and what that is. But perhaps some of you maybe don't know what that is. Uh, back in the ancient world, when kings were appointed, or often prophets and sometimes priests, they were anointed. Uh, the person doing the anointing, in this case Samuel, uh, would actually have a horn, a physical horn of an animal. That horn would be filled with oil, usually olive oil. And then that oil would be poured all over the head of the person being anointed, so much so that it would often kind of drip down into their beard and their eyes. And so that's what the concept of anointing is. Uh, the writer of 1 Samuel is not going to explain anointing while it's happening, so I just thought I would explain that before we read the text. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word. 1 Samuel 16, we'll read verses 1 through 13. Again, this is God's Word. The Lord said to Samuel, the prophet Samuel, How long will you grieve over King Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil... And go, I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears of it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you, and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord, and invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you, should, what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice as well. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height or, or stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, there remains the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. 
Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. This is God's word. Let's go to him in prayer. Oh Lord our God, we thank you for this amazing word. Lord, we come to you much like Samuel, simply asking, show us the king. Show us the king. Surprise us once again with the counterintuitive beauty and simplicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hear our prayer, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we're starting a brand new series on the life of David. David, I believe, is one of the most fascinating people in the whole Bible. David was a shepherd. We see that in our passage today. Before he was a, a king, he was a working class, blue collar type of guy, one of those, doing one of those dirty jobs that Mike Rowe talks so much about. He was a warrior. We'll see that next week as we read about the story of the epic battle between David and Goliath. He was a faithful friend. We'll see that in two weeks as we look at the story of David and Jonathan, two men who were best friends who show us the importance and beauty of Christian friendship. David was a poet. Did you know that David wrote 75 of the 150 psalms, including some of the most beloved psalms in the entire book of psalms? Who could forget Psalm 23? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He was a king. David ruled over Israel for 40 years. He was a 10-term president. Imagine it. But not only did David rule over Israel for 40 years, his family dynasty ruled over Israel for 300 years. Imagine if the president of the United States was the six times great-grandson or granddaughter of George Washington. That's how long his family ruled over Israel. For many years, David was an outlaw and a fugitive, the Harrison Ford to Saul's Tommy Lee Jones. He spent many years of his life running from King Saul, living in tents, sleeping in caves. You might say that foxes have holes and birds have nests, but David had no place to lay his head. Sadly, David was also, also an adulterer. He infamously slept with a married woman named Bathsheba. He was a murderer. He infamously murdered her husband, Uriah the Hittite. He was a polygamist. He had at least seven wives, perhaps eight, perhaps many more. Scholars actually debate and disagree with one another about how many wives that he had, but the point is he had more than one. A little pastoral counsel for you. If you walk around your living room and your house and determine how many husbands or wives that you have, and the answer is more than one, you need to repent. You probably need some serious medical, some marriage counseling, probably a whole team of marriage counselors, because this was not right. And yet, the scripture tells us that David was a man after God's own heart. How can that be? Well, the answer is, it's complicated. Life is complicated. People are complicated. David was a saint. 
but David was also a sinner. And in fact, he was both of those things at the same time. Like many of us, he was capable of doing great things for God's glory. But he was also capable of doing terrible things for his own glory. That explains why the story of David might be the least Veggie Tales friendly story in the whole Bible. Ironically enough, David will take us to the heights of devotion, courage, bravery, integrity. But he'll also take us to the depths of depravity and despair. Lies, violence, infidelity, broken people and broken families, all are part of the story of David. All of this part is part of the legacy of a man who is arguably the greatest man in the entire Old Testament. While a, certain, while a case could certainly be made for Abraham or Moses or the prophet Elijah or perhaps the prophet Isaiah, it should be noted that David's biography is the longest biography in the whole Bible. Indeed, David's biography is the longest biography of any person in the ancient world, whether inside the Bible or outside the Bible. There is no more documented life than the life of King David. So why so much ink spilled on this one man? Why David? What is the story of David really all about? Well, as we'll see in our passage this morning, the story of David is a story about Israel's search for a king, a righteous king, a true king, a Messiah, an anointed one, someone who will, in the words of Samuel's mother Hannah, break the bows of the mighty and bind up the feeble and the weak. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, we read, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed, his Mashiach, his Messiah. The tension in the narrative comes from the question, is David the true king? Is David the Messiah? Is David the Holy One of Israel, the righteous king, the one who will fulfill all of the promises of God, first to Adam and Eve in the garden, and then to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses? Will David be the man? Or, to borrow a question from John the Baptist, should we look for another? That's where we find ourselves in 1 Samuel 16. The prophet Samuel is in mourning. The people's king, Saul, was rejected by God. And so the question remains, will God reject his people along with him? Will God restore the nation? Will God abandon his sons and daughters? Does God have a plan to bring peace on earth? And if so, how does God's plan challenge Everything that we think we know about politics, about religion, about power, about providence. How does this brief sketch about the anointing of King David preach a much better sermon than don't judge a book by its cover? How does this anointing show us the heart 
of God. If you're taking notes this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to break down this story into three scenes. In the first scene, Samuel longs for a king. In scene two, the second scene, Samuel searches for a king. And finally, in scene three, Samuel finds a king. Did he find the king? Who's the king that we're looking for? Let's take a closer look. Scene one, Samuel longs for a king. Now, in order to get the, a little bit of the context, I'm going to back up into chapter 15, looking at verse 34. Let's look. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and King Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Our story begins where Saul's story ends. All the way back in chapters 1 and 2 of 1 Samuel, God had promised a barren woman whose name is Hannah, Hannah means grace, that she would be given a son. But not only would Hannah be given a son, who she named Samuel, for he hears the Lord or listens to the Lord, he would also give Israel a king. That king would be a true king, a righteous king, a king who reflected God's character and God's promises and priorities, God's justice and God's mercy. The true king wouldn't use people. The true king would serve people. The true king would not accumulate power for himself. He would distribute the power among the people. The true king would not enslave people as Israel did and later so many of Israel's kings would do. He would set them free. As the king goes, so goes the nation. And so to have a true king in Israel is to see God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. That's why Samuel is mourning. That's why we read that he was up all night. He couldn't sleep. He was ravaged by anxiety and agony because Saul was supposed to have been that king. And Saul failed. In chapter 13, 15, we read about the fall of Saul. God told Saul, go to war against the Amalekites, the enemies of God's people. Only don't do what kings normally do. Don't plunder the nation. Don't take the people hostage so that you can sell them into slavery and make a profit for yourself. This is not a war of imperialism. This is a holy war. This is a war in which God is going to inflict justice on his enemies for his own glory. Saul didn't listen. He went to the Amalekites and waged war against them, and after defeating them, he took their king, King Agag, as a hostage. He plundered the nation. We read, all that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction. 
That's kind of like saying, we mostly obeyed you, God. We sort of obeyed you. We kind of obeyed you. We did devote some things to destruction. It's like saying, yes, God, technically I did rob a bank, but I tithed. I gave 10% of what I stole to the church. Isn't that good enough? God's answer to Saul and to all of us is a resounding no. Saul disobeyed the Lord. Samuel caught him red-handed, and after some excuse-making and blame-shifting, God said, you're done. You're finished, Saul. I'm going to raise up a new king, a king after my own heart. When Samuel heard this news, he was absolutely crushed. And so the question to all of us this morning, reading this story thousands of years later, is have you ever experienced the kind of pain and agony and disappointment that Samuel experienced in this story? Not physical pain necessarily, though that is certainly part of it, but emotional pain, anguish that is more mental than physical. Have you ever been profoundly disappointed by pastors or parents or presidents? Have, have your friends ever let you down? There's a lot of indication in the story of Samuel and Saul that they were more than prophet and king, some sort of official relationship that they had with one another. I believe that they were friends. So that doubled the agony that Samuel experienced when Saul not only let down the nation and not only let down God, he let down his friend. Now, if that hasn't happened to you, if you haven't experienced that in life, I promise you it will. Why? Because no single human being can bear the weight of eternity. No single human being can answer and account for the deepest desires and longings of our heart. No human being can give us what only God can give. Peace, joy, comfort, hope, salvation. Not Samuel, not David, not Saul, certainly not me, certainly not your parents, certainly not your friends. But the good news is that God can satisfy the deepest longings of our hearts. God can give us justice. God can give us mercy. God can give us security and hope and salvation. God can provide us with a king. Verse 1. Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. When human kings and human queens fail us, when pastors and elders and deacons fail us, when parents and grandparents fail us, when our friends fail us, when presidents and senators and congressmen and governors and judges fail us, God will provide a king. The question is, who is he? Who is that king? Scene two. Samuel searches for a king. 
In the second second scene, Samuel overcame his fear of King Saul, who would indeed have killed him if he discovered that Samuel was out looking for the next king to replace him on the throne. He obeyed God and he traveled to the tiny city of Bethlehem, looking for a king among Jesse's sons. Verse 4. Samuel did what the Lord had commanded, and he came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? Now, at first it seems like a strange reaction, but in order to understand it, you have to remember what Samuel just did in 1 Samuel 15. In 1 Samuel 15, after Saul refused to kill Agag, the king of the Amalekites, we read that King Agag came to Samuel. He was very cheerful. He said, hey, looks like we can let bygones be bygones. And Samuel, the prophet, responded to his cheerfulness by cheerfully hacking him to death with his sword. Church was a lot more violent in those days. Uh, Blue comment cards are an evangelical invention of the last century. Back then, if you complained, you might get hacked to death with a sword. I don't know if it's better or worse, but I'm just making that observation. So the elders were very nervous about Samuel's arrival. They said, do you come in peace? But Samuel assured them that he had come in peace and he'd come to make sacrifices to the Lord. And then he invited them to join in with the celebration. Verse 6. When Jesse, and, when Jesse and his sons came to the feast, he looked on Eliab. Eliab was uh, Jesse's oldest son. And he thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Why was Samuel so sure that Eliab was God's chosen king? Well, probably because Eliab looked like a king. He was taller than his brothers. He was stronger than his brothers. He was perhaps more handsome than the rest of his brothers. In fact, he reminded Samuel a lot of his old friend Saul. Saul, too, was chosen to be king of the people because he was a mighty warrior. He was a head taller than all of his countrymen. And so when the people saw him, they said, Surely this man is our king. And so when Samuel saw Eliam, he thought, Another Saul! Who else could it be? I found in, founded God's chosen king. Here's the problem. God didn't want another Saul. He didn't want another king who would be taller and mightier and stronger. He wanted someone after his own heart. Verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees, but for man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. When it comes to greatness in the kingdom of God, God doesn't value the things that we tend to value. We value strength. God values weakness. We value outer beauty. God values inward beauty. We value competence, skill, the ability to get the job done. God values character, who we are on the inside. That's what counts. Now, that's an incredible lesson that all of us can take anywhere we go, whether we're hiring someone for a job, whether we're looking for a husband or a wife or a boyfriend or a girlfriend, whether we are are, uh, searching out ways in this world to select people to do jobs for us, 
voting, look for courage. Look for character. Look for faith. For man looks at the outward appearance. The Lord looks at the heart. Now, unfortunately, Samuel was a slow learner. Or perhaps he was just a very bad judge of character because Jesse kept bringing more and more sons to Samuel, six more possible candidates to be the king of Israel. Samuel affirmed them all. God rejected them. Verse 11, then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, well, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. Now, the Hebrew word that we translate youngest could also be translated smallest or, or least significance. It's as if, as if Jesse is saying, oh, well, there is one more son, the baby of the family. The baby of the family is out watching the sheep. How many of you are the baby of the family? Anyone? Some of you? Some of you are close to collecting Social Security, and you're still the baby of the family. <laughs> is, is that not annoying? I'm the baby of our family, so I, I, this, I take this a little bit personally, right? I'm a grown man. I'm not the baby of the family. Why would he do, say he's the baby of the family? It, it's an insult. So what's the point? The point is, we have an idea in our mind about who should be king. The king should be strong, the king should be tall and handsome, the king should be talented, perhaps a straight-A student with an Ivy League degree. He shouldn't be the youngest. He shouldn't be the smallest. He shouldn't have soft hands and delicate features. Samuel notes here, we're told that David was ruddy and had beautiful eyes. Now in our culture, that's a compliment. We're saying, hey, he's complimenting him. Back then, not a compliment. Back then, you did not want your kings to have, to have ruddy and beautiful eyes. You wanted them to have rough skin and murderous eyes. You didn't want your king to use moisturizer or, or to, to shop for skinny jeans at the mall. You wanted a big Dave Balzer looking guy with a beard and a bald head and just looking ready to like he could wreck somebody, right? You wanted a king who was out in the field hacking people to death for criticizing their sermons. Here's what God's saying. You think you know what matters, but you don't. Your heart matters to God. Your character matters to God. Your integrity matters to God. Your holiness matters to God. Man looks at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. And so my question for you, as those who are gathered together hearing this story, is how is your heart? How's your heart? Do you love the things that God loves? Do you love the people that God loves? Do you love the poor? Do you love those who are in crisis? Do you love the weak? Do you love the vulnerable, the insignificant? Do you love people who are kind of annoying? Do you love people who kind of grate on your nerves? If your answer to one or all of these questions is a resounding no, 
then I would suggest that perhaps you need not only new habits and new laws and new rules and new procedures imposed on you from the outside in, perhaps you need to change from the inside out. Perhaps you need God to give you a heart transplant. Perhaps you need God to take away your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. A new glorious heart that beats to the rhythm of God's amazing grace. Ultimately, that's what salvation is. Jesus the King takes away our hearts of stone. He nails them to the cross where His heart was broken. And then He gives us new glorious hearts. He gives us, gives us His heart. He gives us his spirit, the spirit of adoption through whom we cry out, Abba, Father, do you have the new heart? Do you have God's Holy Spirit poured out into your heart and into your life? David did. Do you? That's where we're going next. Scene three, Samuel finds a king. Verse 12 and Jesse sent and brought David in. Now he was ruddy and beautiful, with beautiful eyes and handsome. Again, not a compliment in this particular scenario. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. And Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. There are two things that make an ordinary person like David and an ordinary person like you and an ordinary person like me into an extraordinary person, an extraordinary king, the Word of God and the Spirit of God. David was elect. God chose him. David was empowered. God filled him. That's the secret to greatness. If you are a Christian, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you believe that you are a sinner in need of God's grace and that Jesus has taken your place on the cross, all of your sin and all of your shame, so that he might clothe you in his perfect righteousness, so that he might give you a heart that beats for the glory of God. If Jesus is your king, then you are elect chosen by God from before the foundation of the world. Not because of who you are, but because of who He is. A God who justifies the ungodly. A God who adopts rogues and rebels into His forever family, the family of faith. But that's not all. Not only are you elect, chosen by God, you are empowered, you are equipped by God to face any challenge that you might face. We'll see that next week in the story of, of David and Goliath, this great and mighty king. All saw him and they trembled in fear, but not David because he was empowered by God's Holy Spirit. Many of us will never face giants like Goliath, but we do face giants that look a lot like cancer. And we face giants that look a lot like racism. And we face giants that look a lot like COVID-19. Now, God equips us 
to fight the battles. Now, we may not win every battle. You'll note in the story of David that David won some battles. He also lost some battles. He won the battle against Goliath. He lost the battle against Bathsheba. He won the battle against King Saul. He lost the battle against his own son, Absalom, who hated him. God doesn't promise us victory in this life, but he does promise us victory in the life to come. And he promises that that victory will come through a king, a great and mighty king, a king who is greater than King David, a king who is an anointed one, Jesus Christ, Jesus the King. I've already hinted at it, but did you know that the word that the Hebrew uses for anointed or anointed one is Mashiach, Messiah. When translated into Greek, that word is Christos, Christ. Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus, the Christ, is our King. Israel had King David. We have a king who is the son of David, who, like David, was born in the little town of Bethlehem, who, like David, was chosen by God the Father and equipped by God the Holy Spirit. You remember the story of his baptism. God the Father said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And then the Spirit of God rushed like a dove onto Jesus in his baptism, his anointing as king. In this story, David, King David, was forgotten by his father. At the end of the story, Samuel says, don't you have any more sons? And, and Jesse says, oh, I forgot. I have David. He's one more son. He's out in the field watching over the sheep. Our king, our messiah, the chosen one of God was not only forgotten by the Father, he was forsaken by the Father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken so that we might be embraced. He was forgotten so that we might be remembered. That's the king, ultimately, that Samuel was looking for. That's the king we're looking for. The real king, the chosen king, the anointed one of God. And when you find him, your life will change forever. Have you found him? Have you found the great and mighty king? Have you found Jesus, the Savior? You probably won't find him in the White House. You probably won't find him hobnobbing with the rich and famous on Martha's Vineyard or Palm Beach. You probably won't find him on Wall Street, though there are Christians in every field on earth, certainly. You will find him shepherding the sheep. You will find him nailed to the cross. You will find him standing with the weak and the powerless. And someday you will find him in heaven, seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Come to him in faith. Come to the king. Worship the king, all glorious above. And faithfully sing his power 
and his love. He loves you. He's the king. Let's go to God in prayer. Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for our anointed one, our Messiah, our king. I pray, Lord God, that if anyone here or within the sound of my voice has not yet met Jesus, that they would today come and find their king. Lord, often we are like Samuel. We ironically fail to listen to your voice. And we seek so many lesser kings. And we wonder why we're never satisfied. I pray, Lord God, that you would satisfy us with the bread of life through Jesus. Hear our prayer, for we pray in his name. Amen.